one of his sermons to us, spoke of the fact that the Bible not only speaks of utopia, it speaks of Edentopia, going back to the garden. And uh, this is uh, this month, last month actually, uh, the 49th anniversary of an event that took place in rural New York called Woodstock. And some people thought of Woodstock as not only utopia, but Edentopia. And we see that reflected in a song written by Joni Mitchell that was popularized by Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young, and it sort of in song chronicled this trip to Woodstock, this massive music festival out in the middle of a field, hundreds of thousands of people. And it went like this. Well, I came upon a child of God. He was walking along the road, and I asked him, tell me, where are you going? This he told me. He said, I'm going down to Yasker's farm, going to join in a rock and roll band, got to get back to the land and set my soul free. We are stardust, we are golden, we are billion-year-old carbon, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. By the time we got to Woodstock, we were half a million strong, and everywhere was a song and a celebration. Is that what it means to get back to Eden? Is that Edentopia? singing and dancing in a muddy field? What's your view of getting back to the garden? When you think of the Garden of Eden, do you sort of conjure up images of Adam and Eve sitting around, lounging, and eating peeled grapes all day? You know, what, what, how do you think of the Garden of Eden? Well, let's get back to the garden by going back to where the Bible speaks of it in the book of Genesis. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 30, and then we'll also look at some, uh, some, some passages in chapter 2 of Genesis. And if you're following along in your pew Bible, it's on page 2. Page 2. Beginning with verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in, in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given you every green plant for food. And it was so. And now turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. 
And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And finally, Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So this Labor Day weekend, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about our work. And the first thing we need to understand as we contemplate this is the concept we find here of being created in the image of God. Adam and Eve, and by extension, all of us are created in the image of God. What does that mean? It means at least three things. The first is that in some way we are created to be like God in a capacity to be morally holy. Adam and Eve were created sinless since the fall. We sin. Uh, We've got a sinful nature. But part of what God is doing in us as believers in Jesus Christ in redeeming us is he's given us a new heart and he's working on us, conforming us to the image of God of Jesus Christ. We read that in Ephesians, excuse me, in Romans chapter 8 verse 29 that we're being conformed to the image of Christ, who we read in Colossians 1:15 is the image of God. And Ephesians 4:24 says that we're to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So there's a moral component. Secondly, it simply distinguishes us from every other creature. There's no other creature that is created in the image of God. And that makes us different. And that makes us special and unique. And one of the ways that, uh, the, one of the outworkings of that is that no innocent human being is to be killed. That is not simply an affront to that human being. It's an affront to God who created us in his image. And even after the fall, though the image of God is marred in human beings, we still have the image of God. We read this in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And finally, the third thing more pertinent to what we're talking about today is that we are created in God's image, and so we are delegated rulers. God has given us the task of ruling. And we read that in our passage, Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. Verse 28, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And these two words for subdue and dominion are very strong words. And keep in mind, God gave this task to Adam and Eve before the fall, before things became more difficult. They were to subdue. And The rest of the Bible, oftentimes the word subdue is given uh, to describe what a conquering army does uh, to a people. They are subdued under military might. And dominion simply means rule, authority, reign. 
Now, what did that mean for Adam and Eve in the garden? How were they to rule and subdue in the garden? Well, they were given the task of keeping the garden. We read that terminology. They were to keep it. They were to work the ground. And so we read this in Genesis 1.29. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, and there was no man to work the ground. Genesis 2, 6, that the, the land was, the whole face of the ground was being watered. Genesis 2, 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Genesis 2, 9, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And finally, in 2, 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Now, for us, as we apply that, there is an ecological aspect to that. We're to keep. That word keep is the same word, the famous phrase that Cain said to God concerning Abel, am I my brother's keeper? Uh, God also said in Genesis 28, 15, behold, I am with you and I will keep you. And Adam and Eve were to keep the garden. Last week, our conference speaker, Johnny Gibson, uh, had the opportunity on Saturday afternoon to, to go out and see and to experience uh, some of the wonderful things of, of Bay County, and uh, he was out on the water, and he caught a bull red. And so he took that bull red home, and he filleted, and he ate it. No, he didn't. He didn't do that, and anybody in the law, legal profession, he didn't do that. Why? because that would be illegal. It was above the legal limit. And why is that the case? Because we want to sustain the species, and so certain legal limits are set what you can take. That's part of keeping, keeping the species intact. And then after the fall, it becomes even more difficult. Genesis Chapter 3, this is after Adam and Eve sinned. Because you have listened, God said to Adam, to the voice of your wife, and have eaten, eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. My wife Susan and I planted a little garden outside of our house for the first time this year since we've been here in the Panama City area, and we planted a couple of garden, a uh, couple of tomato plants, and they grew four feet high, just wonderful, loaded with all kinds of uh, uh, tomatoes coming up, green tomatoes, and not long after that, the worms came. And uh, we fought the worms, and we won, at least we thought we won, but now there's one green tomato on the entire two plants. Uh, why? Because of this passage here today. Because God cursed the earth, and by the sweat of our brow, we produce fruit. We produce food. And so we're called to work. And this, is, this application is not just for farmers and not just for gardeners. It's for everybody that endeavors and works in organizing, in uh, bringing order to the chaos, in whatever vocation God has called you to. 
And so you might be a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. Uh, You might be an attorney. You might be a student. You might be a congresswoman. You might be a homemaker. Uh, Whatever you do is a noble calling from God. It's part of the outworking of the image of God that he has placed on you and the calling he has given you is image bearers. And sometimes this is called the cultural mandate here in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And what that means, practically speaking, is that if you do what you do for the glory of God, there's a sense in which, in the broad sense, that it's not secular, that God has called you to do this for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. There was a student at Florida State when I was a campus minister there. I was uh, finishing up my seventh year. I was getting ready to leave, and she was finishing up her third year. And as I was exiting, she said, there's one thing that you told me my freshman year that had more of a practical impact on me than anything else you said. And you were saying that whatever we do, we can do for the glory of God. And you used the example of cleaning toilets. You said you can clean toilets for the glory of God. She said, if I can clean toilets for the glory of God, I can study and be a student for the glory of God. She said, it revolutionized my uh, academic life over the last three years. Another student I knew, this was actually earlier, right after I was uh, graduating from college. I graduated, and I knew a student happened to also go to Florida State. He was in the graduate program. He was getting a master's in biology. And he told me that he was going to go into some sort of ministry field, um, and he was just kind of rolling his eyes at what he had been studying and writing a paper on. He said, I'm writing a paper on bee's knees. Can you believe it? Uh, So boring. You know, what impact does that have? I'd just as soon be in ministry where I have a real impact on on, uh, people. Well, even at that point, I thought, well, bee's knees are kind of important. Uh, Bee's knees collect pollen. And uh, here's Dave Goulson is a professor of biology at the University of Sussex in England. And he says this, without bees, our diets would be depressingly poor. We would be forced to survive on wind-pollinated crops, wheat, barley, and corn, and little else. Imagine shops without raspberries, apples, strawberries, peas, beans, melons, tomatoes, blueberries, pumpkins, and much more. Bees and other insects have provided free pollination for our crops for millennia. They will continue to do so if we learn to recognize their importance and return the favor by providing them with what they need to survive. In other words, bees' knees are really the bees' knees. I mean, they're really wonderful, and God has created them, and they're beneficial to mankind and to all nature. Now, maybe my friend as many people who feel a calling from God, regardless of what you're doing, uh, think that what they're doing is the best thing. You know, God called me to that. So uh, maybe I can give him a little credit for that. But oftentimes people think that the only people that are really doing the Lord's work are people in ministry. And yet that's not true. If God has called you to rule and subdue, to live out your life in a different way, uh, organizing working uh, for his glory, then that calling is a holy calling from the Lord. And sometimes you experience that, right? When you're working and you're, you're doing it for God's glory and you, and, you, and you feel like this is what God made you to do. Um, the famous quote, 
from the movie Chariots of Fire. Eric Liddell was uh, made famous, the Scottish minister who would go on to be a missionary in China. And uh, the famous line from the movie, Jenny, I believe God made me for a purpose for China, but also made me fast. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. To win is to honor him. And sometimes that in our vocations, we feel that way, that God has made us for this. We feel God's pleasure. And sometimes we don't, right? Fill in that blank, okay? Whatever you do during the day, when I do this, I feel God's pleasure? Well, maybe not. But if it's done for God's glory, you can be assured that God is pleased in it. We studied in the book of Colossians uh, the, the instructions that God gave to slaves. He said, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, if you happen to be a slave in the first century and you're cleaning out the pigsty, I don't know that you're going to say, when I clean out the pigsty, I feel God's pleasure. Now, maybe... I mean, it's certainly theoretically possible, but my point is this, that there are times we are called to do things that we don't always feel like Eric Liddell in Chariots of Fire. I feel God's pleasure when I do this. And yet, and yet, if you are doing what you do for the glory of God, then you are pleasing God. It is a holy calling from God. Now, a couple of words of caution. There are ways in which we can work in ways that are not pleasing to God. Um, and the first is that when we work for our own glory rather than God's glory. There are many, many people who are workaholics who are doing absolutely nothing for God. They're doing it for themselves. And secondly, there are times when we can get our priorities out of whack. Um, there are three basic callings that we find in the Scripture. Um, this deserves another sermon, but in general, the first is a call to holiness, that we're called to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. And God's praise the Lord. He's working on that in our hearts. Secondly, we're given the great commission to go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And each one of you is given that task to be a part of the endeavor to get the word of Christ out um, to uh, all creation. And what would it be worth if uh, you were living out your life, let's say, as a, as a car salesman, uh, and you were selling a lot of cars, you did a great job at that, but you were dishonest, and you were cheating people. Or all you were concerned about was the here and now, and you weren't concerned about people's destiny for all eternity. So those two callings are the primary, most important callings. But my point in talking about the cultural mandate as being an important third calling is this, that probably nine-tenths of what you're going to do in the day is related to the cultural mandate and not pointedly to the calling to holiness and the calling to the Great Commission. You're probably not going to spend the majority of your time doing acts of kindness and love 
being honest, um, and telling people about Jesus Christ. The rest of your life is not irrelevant. It is what God has called you to as well. And so place a priority on it. Doesn't matter whether you study for a test or prepare for a brief or crunch numbers or drill for water or do vaccinations on humans or animals or whatever it is. You do it for the glory of God. There's dignity in it. And you're expressing being created in the image of God and given the role of ruling and subduing through it. Jesus came in part to redeem our work. In our first passage today, in Romans chapter 8, we read about this interconnection that exists between human beings and the earth. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, it affected the earth. The earth was cursed. And the, the future of the earth is wrapped up in our future. And as Christ has come to redeem us, the earth has hope for its own redemption. And the earth is personified in Romans 8. The earth is speaking. The earth is groaning. And so Romans 8:18. for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's decay that set in on the earth that was a result of the fall and the sin of Adam, Adam and Eve and the curse of God on the planet as a result. And so we read, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Groaning, and we we await eagerly the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. So we know one day, as believers in Jesus Christ, that the same resurrected body that Jesus has, we will receive. And so we look forward to that time, and the creation is pictured as waiting for that event as well. Now in the book of Second Peter, we find that the earth will be destroyed, but the earth its destruction is going to be through fire, and it'll be a, a redemption through judgment. Again, as Johnny Gibson talked about last week, it's not going to be an obliteration of all of the, all of the stuff of the earth. Uh, the, the creation is not groaning for its annihilation and being obliterated, obliterated. It is groaning for its redemption, for its recreation. And so we read of this in Revelation chapter 21 near the end of the Bible, speaking of how things will end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. A new earth, a new reality, really better than Eden. 
And then our final reality, Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You, as believers in Christ, will reign forever and ever. Just as Adam and Eve were given that mandate to rule and subdue in Genesis, and that has been frustrated by the fall and by our own sinfulness, one day in perfection, you will reign. What does that mean, practically speaking? The Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of insight into exactly what we're going to be doing. But know this, that the calling that you have right now to rule and subdue in the, in the spectacular and in the mundane is a calling from God. It's something that extends from the garden and the new creation. And so what do we need? We need redemption in order to experience that. We need to be redeemed from the sin that plunged the world into this decay. We need to be redeemed personally from the effects of sin in our lives. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The wrath of God fell on Jesus Christ. He came here for that purpose, to do what you could not do. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't work to earn it. Jesus worked in order to earn our redemption, our forgiveness of sins, and, the, and acceptance by God and looking forward to ultimate redemption. Personally, our spirits, our souls, our bodies, and the new creation comes through redemption, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you have come to that place in your life where you've placed your faith in him and not in yourself, then you know redemption and you look forward to the day when you will rule and reign in complete perfection. And for the time being, you're given the task of doing that in this fallen world. You know, I started with an example of Edentopia, a foretaste of it at Woodstock. Um, and I do believe that there was actually an example of it at Woodstock, but it was really behind the scenes. It wasn't what uh, was taking place in the dancing and the singing and the music. Uh, this was uh, recorded in the Journal of Emergency Medical Services. And there was a doctor by the name of William Abruzzi. He was a local general practitioner in the area, this rural uh, rural area of New York, and uh, he was given the task of preparing uh, medical services for those that were coming to the concert, but unfortunately, the estimates that he was given would be that there would be about 50,000 people there, and instead, there are about 500,000 people there, and as the concert uh, day came and as they started to see the people coming and arriving, they realized they were in big trouble because they weren't prepared. Uh, one of the participating physicians said, we had the makings of a medical disaster here. And so Abruzzi uh, went into action and they came up with contingency plans. They did things like for triage, uh, they had a, um, a circus tent that was there to take care of the staff. They converted it into a triage uh, area where they had cots set up. 
um, they um, got facilities ready to receive uh, people who are injured and uh, having other kind of medical problems uh, out in the community and even further away and hospitals and schools were set up to handle them. Uh, in terms of transportation, nobody could get to or from the concert. Some of you remember that. There were cars were stopped on the side of the road. It was complete traffic jam. So they got the helicopters that were bringing uh, the artists and their equipment to the concert, and they used those to transport people to and from, uh, from the site to medical facilities, including two large U.S. Army Huey helicopters that were on summer maneuvers at West Point Military Academy, and they had a couple of Air Force medics on board. And the outcome of these and other plans was that uh, at the concert, there were only two deaths. Uh, they were thinking there would be a lot more. One was an accident. Somebody uh, died by, by accidental means. The other was apparently an overdose. Uh, but all in all, an amazing outcome. And that's why I say when you go back to the garden, you get yourself back to the garden, you see that Adam and Eve went to work. And so what we find is a bruisey uh, using his gifts, using his abilities to rule and subdue, to make things right and good on the planet. Now, it's Labor Day weekend, right? And so, uh, you know, what did Adam and Eve do in the garden? Well, they weren't sitting in their lounge chair eating grapes. But we also see in the Bible that there is importance in rest right? Uh, we see that in Genesis, and so do rest this weekend, and on Monday night, you might actually be in your lounge chair eating grapes or something else, uh, watching the game, and that's great, but on Tuesday morning when you wake up and go to school or go to work or start working in the home, know this, that you have a calling from God to rule and subdue, and that comes out of your being created in the image of God Whatever you do, do for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a meaningful life, a life to live for you. Yes, a life to live for you in holiness and with the task of helping people come to know your son, Jesus Christ, but also in whatever we do, whatever our vocation is, Father, I pray uh, that you would give us the strength and the energy and the inclination and the knowledge that this is a calling from you and that we can do all things for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.